Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to our show today. Uh, we're going to be talking about museum collections, which in, in many ways def- have for years defined what museums are all about, uh, collecting and caring for the stuff of our lives. But what does it mean to be, uh, to have a collection in a digital age when we can look at at things from the Louvre or the British Museum or sometimes even our neighborhood museum just by looking on our iPhone. Uh, so today to help us understand this a little bit better is uh, Marcia Semmel. Welcome, Marcia. It's great to have you on the show today. Well, thank you so much, Carol. It's wonderful to be here. Marsha, I just want to tell uh, our listening audience a little bit about you. You are currently a senior advisor to the Noyce Leadership Institute, uh, which looks at, uh, is a global network of executives and science centers and uh, children's museums and other kinds of, of organization to look at uh, how leadership can be developed in, for community engagement and uh, a response to future trends. So you really are a very forward-thinking uh, museum professional. And, of course, prior to that, you have been in the Office of Strategic Partnerships for the Institute of Museum and Library Services, and uh, you've also been a museum director. So you, have, you bring a very unique perspective uh, to our conversation this morning. Well, thank you. I've been thinking about these issues for a long time. Marcia, could you tell us a, a little bit more about uh, what, you, what you did at the Institute of Museum and Library Services? Sure. Thanks, Carol. I, uh, I was there for about 10 years. I was the first director for strategic partnerships for the Institute of Museum and Library Services, which is a, a small federal agency in the United States which is devoted to building the capacity of museums of all types and libraries of all types to serve their communities as community anchor institutions and as centers of lifelong learning. So as uh, the Director for Strategic Partnership, I worked on projects around museums, libraries, and 21st century skills, the role of museums in early childhood learning, which is a big topic here in the U.S. and elsewhere, and I had partnerships with uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the other cultural agencies. Uh, during my time at IMLS, I also served as the deputy in charge of the Office of Museum Services. And for about 12, 11 months, I was the acting director of the agency during a kind of shift change from a museum person to a library person at the helm. But that experience gave me a wonderful, wonderful vantage point to look at what's happening in museums of all sizes and in many, many communities around the U.S. And with a partnership we did with the Salzburg Global uh, Forum, we actually had conversations about collections and participatory culture with colleagues around the world. 
Wow. So you were you were there during the transition uh, in IMLS from it being the uh, Institute of Museum Services to being the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Is that well, correct? No, I joined a few years after. Okay. Okay. I, I came in um, in two thousand at the end of two thousand two, and that tra- transition had begun uh, in the late nineteen nineties under the direction direction of Diane Frankel. Ah, ah, that's right. Uh, so it seems to me that what are the uh, connections, the, the broad connections that you've seen between, well, actually among museums, libraries, and as you've even mentioned, public television, you know, very, very different uh, uh, styles or or maybe hubs for learning, but I'm sure that they they hold some connectivity. Yeah, I and and I think uh, some of these boundaries are joining and blurring in new ways, given the fact that we're in this global knowledge society that you referenced in your introductory remarks about what is accessible on a mobile device or on your iPad or uh, tablet computer. So I think my um, I like to quote one of my mentors, Harold Scramstead, who basically said that museums, libraries, and public broadcasting are the uh, public utilities of the knowledge society. Each one of us uh, has different capacities for collecting and sharing stories. Uh, each one of us has slightly different models, uh, organization chart models and economic models. Each one of our types of organizations has different levels of public support. But I would argue that in the end, we're all about uh, places of accessible public engagement and learning. We can all be forums for civic discourse. We can all be places that enable the members of our communities to discuss and address some of our pressing problems some of which are about learning, some of them are about individual learning, and some of these issues and challenges are around larger community uh, uh, issues that we have, whether it's global climate change or healthy living or issues around uh, dealing with new immigrants and uh, welcoming them into our communities. It's interesting you you talk about uh, this sense of place, and I think that that's also something that is shifting in our digital world, where you know, a sense of place uh, or a place for discourse—perhaps that's a better way of putting right. it—can um, right. occur on somebody's blog site. You know, where you and I could be millions of miles away in, in different cultures and different parts of the world, and we might still have a conversation digitally. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if you feel comfortable commenting a little bit about the difference then between having a discourse in the virtual world and having a discourse in the real world, say, in front of a museum object. You know, I think we have to be in a both-and situation. I think that we have seen that virtual communities are forming and have formed around incredible issues and problems and passions. We see that with the growth of the gaming, uh, gaming methodologies and 
um, the the kinds of uh, expertise and mastery that can occur in a gaming environment. And some museums are delving into that environment as well. At the same time, I think we're seeing um, people who want to be together face-to-face. And we're seeing that museums, uh, to just focus on museums, we're seeing how museums are creating spaces that are that can and, and be anchored by collections and by experiences that uh, are bringing people together who want to be together for an experience. I think one of the most interesting um, things to look at is, on the one hand, the growth of uh, video games and learning video games, and many museums are engaged in that kind of learning, and at the same time, the growth of maker culture, where you have museums creating in their spaces, uh, often inspired by their collections, places for people to gather and do quilting, um, do painting, do electronics, create audio tapes. And I, I think these are two really interesting trends that leverage people's needs for on-site community and online community. That is very interesting. And as you and I were, were talking a little bit uh, before the show, uh, I, I think sometimes uh, it's easy for those of us of a certain generation, a generation that uh, uh, grew up before the electronic world uh, was, was in full blossom, to think in either or, because I think we still are having a challenging time making the the transition to and both as mm-hmm. as you so properly said and uh so i'm i'm wondering if sometimes the com- the conversations we have uh are are a a false distinction that perhaps someone in say my son's generation who's 22 uh doesn't really even consider you know it's just all part of his life uh, I think for many younger people, it, it can be all part of their lives, but I think then the challenge for our museums is to understand that the learning needs and the expectations of people, and, you know, especially young people, but I would say, you know, people of many, many ages, uh, they, there are different expectations about uh, how their what their learning needs are and how they want to pursue and fulfill their learning needs, and what that requires is some changed mindsets uh, on the part of museum professionals. I would argue because I think that that there could be um, you know different responses. One response could be an embracing of these of this new these new learning possibilities. And, uh, and then there could be another response that says, you know, um, this is not for us. And we have to hunker down and preserve, uh, some of, of what we've done in the past. And I think if we do that, we stand the risk of alienating all sorts of potential audiences who not only are adept at kind of the new, the new technologies that are, you know, transforming all of our lives, but, you know, would be wonderful, eager consumers of what we have to offer. 
I think those are that is very important. And so when we come back from our break, uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about how what role collections can play in uh, involving this next this uh, generation and some of the barriers that museums face. So we'll back be back in a few. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard, and I'm here with uh, Marsha Semmel. I want to remind everyone that if you want to uh, join the conversation at any time, you can. And also, you can always contact me at carolbossertservices.com to follow up on any of the things you hear today or on any of our other shows. So, Marsha, before we we went to break, you were talking a little bit about uh, the role that museums can play using digital technologies, uh, perhaps the currency of, uh, of another generation that can, uh, can really bring the museum back as a central focus of everyone's life. Yeah, and I, you know, my, my point is that the world we're in has changed, the world of learning and information 
and knowledge accessibility. And increasingly, I think people are expecting a seamless experience when they want some information or they want an experience. They want to be able to access it on their uh, mobile phone, on their on their tablet computer, uh, in their home, and so that uh, that poses some wonderful challenges for museums, but also and also some new opportunities. And I think increasingly we're seeing museums adapt via what they offer online and what they offer uh, in their in their own uh, exhibit spaces and in terms of access to their collections. Marcia, one of the things, um, recently you gave a lecture, actually the Stephen Weil Memorial Lecture at the Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums Annual Conference here in Washington, D.C. And you said a couple, uh, well, many, many interesting uh, things, but one of the points that you were making uh, that I... Uh, that uh, really struck me is you said that in today's learning environment uh, that the I that storytelling which is certainly the way that many you know as humans we communicate and we learn from each other is by telling stories but that that storytelling has really shifted in this modern networked world uh, could you e- explain what you meant by that yeah, I think I think first of all that most of our museums are about stories. You know, the, our collections are evidence of stories. I think, as as David Carr, one of your previous guests, has has talked about, the stories are stories that embody our identity, our experiences throughout our lives, our community memories, our individual memories, and I think right now, I, I think the phrase I might have used is the storytelling ground has shifted so that in the past, museums presented information. Museum curators selected objects. Museum curators and educators and designers present exhibitions based on an interpretation of stories, a selection of certain stories. I think that all is is well and good and true. I think, to go back to my previous point, I think our audience's expectations are shifting in this era of what I would call kind of participatory culture, where not only, and this is, this is not only based on technology, I think it's been going on for some time in our museum world, where I think our visitors and our audiences expect to contribute to the stories. They want to share and relate their own memories, their own stories, their own points of view in and with our exhibitions uh, to our websites. And I think museums also are, are aware more than ever that our audiences, our publics, are not um, empty vessels when it comes to knowledge and when it comes to uh, their their own uh, what they can bring to a museum. So increasingly, we're seeing um, museums post information about collections and allowing and encouraging and asking our audiences to complete the documentation of our co- collections or share information about uh, particular natural species based on 
uh, new citizen science projects. So I think the storytelling ground has expanded in some quite wonderful ways. But what that means is that we have to think about some different ways of describing who is the expert and, and respecting expertise as it's coming from different sources. And for I think for some museums that's kind of a hard thing to do, but it's something that several museums have done wonderful projects with. Uh, can you give an example? Yeah. I, there, the Portland Art Museum has done a project called Object Stories, where they've invited, and this is the Portland Art Museum in Portland, Oregon, where they've invited community members to bring in objects and share stories about those objects. And those objects have been featured proudly in uh, exhibitions at the Portland Art Museum. So it's, again, as, as and this, you know, the, my notion of both and has been inspired greatly by Elaine Gurian's work, uh, but the, the whole notion of the curators have knowledge about a, a particular artifact or object which is important and well-researched. But curators are learning all the time new stories about their objects. And now in, in places, well, the National Museum of the American Indian has done this, did this from the very beginning putting out what was on their content uh, catalog cards and inviting members of different tribal communities to um, add to that knowledge, to share that knowledge, and to enrich the story that a curator or researcher might have collected at an earlier time when that object was added to the collection. I, uh, having started my museum career as a, as a curator and prior to that being an academic scientist, I'm, I, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm liking it on one level and I would be less than truthful if I didn't admit that on another le- level my, my academic uh, uh, ego is jumping <laughs> up and down saying, no, it can't possibly be like that. It's going to become complete chaos and people, it's going to be one big internet where people don't know how to uh, uh, parse through information to get a clear story. Help me, help me. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the places I would suggest that you go is to the Cornell University Ornithology, Ornithology Lab, where uh, Rick Bonney, who is in some ways a kind of father of citizen science for many, for many of us, uh, where he has on his website very clear uh, evidence in the form of peer-reviewed scholarly journal articles of how citizen science projects have added to uh, bona fide, accepted uh, scientific knowledge. And that's because when, it, when you uh, unleash the power of the crowd, it doesn't always end up like this, but it can end up with more knowledge. Again, it's not like this knowledge is not moderated or mediated by others. I think there's some really interesting work done on Wikipedia, for example, and the accuracy or the sort of self-policing of a, even a site like Wikipedia. 
And I would argue that curators um, and scholars who are working in a more collaborative way, you don't lose your expertise. But I think that that there can be, and, and I would also argue that one of the reasons that museums can continue to have a place of respect and trust in our current environment is that the public's, by and large, respect the knowledge and expertise of people in museums. They want to seek out that knowledge. So it's a, it's a, it's a churning, evolving environment. It can be a little scary, I think, Carol, but I have a lot of trust and confidence and optimism about it. Well, I, I, I think that that's, that's well put. And the, the reality is, and, and Rick Bonney is, a, uh, I think, a perfect example, uh, the scientific community thrives on and, and is built upon peer review. Uh, and critical analysis of, of documents, uh, and, and reviewing of literature and information over time. And so it, it, it is, I don't think any of my academic scientific co- colleagues would like me saying that it's a crowdsource, but in fact, it is. No, no individual academic, uh, works alone. Uh, they work within a, a body of literature and a body of knowledge. And so what you're saying is that museums are places where they can open up that body of knowledge and, and literature to, to others to work within as well. Yeah, and I, I, I think if we went back to the 19th century and before, before we had quite as, uh, uh, as many specialized disciplines and our current notion of scholarly um, expertise, uh, a lot of really important work was done by so-called uh, amateur, amateur, amateur historians or, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of citizen scientists in the past. I would also, you know, if you move into the history museum world, uh, the notion of um, shared authority bec- uh, has been around for quite a long time. Uh, even back in, I would say, going back to the rise of social history around the time of the bicentennial in 1976, there was an awareness on the part of scholars and history museums and communities that many history museums up to that point were telling very selective histories. Not everybody was represented in the history museum or in the history museum exhibit. So even prior to our Internet age, you had a movement of communities, whether they were ethnic communities or uh, other communities of interest, who were saying, our stories should be part, our stories are part of our community history. How do we tell those stories with you? How do we create exhibits and experiences and frankly, add to the collections that we have in our in our institutions to reflect the ongoing changing history of our communities. 
You, you know, what, what that does is it reminds me uh, that museums can be a place that, that can remind others that curiosity is not simply the province of academically trained individuals, but is something that is for, for all of us. Uh, as sort of, it's, maybe museums are the, are the place to uh, uh, democratize uh, curiosity. And with that point, I will. Uh, we're going to take another break, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about some of these barriers that uh, we we keep alluding to with Marcia Simmel. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. And this is Carol Bossert, and we're here with, today with Marcia Semmel. We've been talking about the role of museums in a digital age. And Marcia, right before we went to break, we were be, we were uh, talking a little bit more about the uh, so 
democratization, I suppose, is one word, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. more, you know, less freighted word is simply the opening up of museum knowledge or any uh, any knowledge uh, to to all individuals and and asking for broader participation. And uh, you know, I used myself as sort of a straw man of the you know the traditional academic, but I'm I'm wondering. Um, well, is there a disconnect going on between the you know sort of this this great world and and museums that can can open themselves up and the training that we are providing museum professionals today and others uh, who enter the museum world perhaps with academic training or a master's in museum studies who have spent a long time and a lot of money to become the experts. Are we shooting ourselves in the foot? Well, I, you know, not necessarily, but I think, again, added to this notion of deep mastery of a particular subject that might come from an, an academic orientation, there needs to be, I also think, the, the openness to a new set of skills that uh, we can offer. I, uh, I like to think about my library friends who have said to me over and over again when a prospective library employee comes to them and says, I want to work at the library, I love to read, and I love books. They tend not to get the job because libraries, and this is true for librarians, this is true for teachers, and I would say it's true for museum professionals as well. Our role is not so much now as a presenter of knowledge. You know, think about Moses and the Ten Commandments uh, coming down from the hill. It's really as an enabler and facilitator of people to pursue their own interests, guiding people to trusted sources. But I would argue also helping our various audiences learn some of the skills that they have developed as experts. Uh, just to go back to Cornell, you know, something that happens, I think, with some of the citizen science projects is that people are instructed about scientific process, scientific methodology. They learn how to ask questions. They learn how to, quest, uh, to uh, look at hypotheses. And students are being taught this in some wonderful ways. Think about history. Uh, one of the roles, I think, that history uh, professors and history curators and educators can provide is around digital and history historiographical literacy. What is it that makes a piece of primary source material in history trustable? What, how do we need to interrogate that piece of history? If we're going to do an oral history project, what are some of the principles that we need to be aware of? And, you know, this feeds into this all-important notion of digital literacy. Um, And, uh, you know, all of us really need to be in that space. So how wonderful to think about even connoisseurship. What is it that gives an art historian the ability to distinguish between uh, a work by Delacroix and a work by Ingres, or, you know, a good work and a not-so-good work. 
I think there's such important new avenues for dialogue and conversation, but we have to have those skills to facilitate effective dialogue and conversation. So do you think uh, in, in uh, current museum uh, studies programs uh, that we are beginning to teach those skills? I think some of them. I'm not familiar with all the programs, uh, and I worry sometimes that there's such a proliferation of museum studies programs. I worry, to, I worry about the, the pipeline into museum jobs, but that's another question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that there's, there's roads, inroads being made. I think there's some programs that are looking at um, the qualities of leadership, the qualities of, of effective teaching and learning, I think uh, on the part of registrars and conservators, I think some of the techniques, first of all, there's a whole new set of uh, expertise around um, digital preservation because every museum now, virtually every museum has digital assets and the management of those assets. But there's also some important qualities and values around openness and collaboration. So your registrar and your conservator and your curator and your educator can't be in silos anymore. They have to be thinking together about what is it the, what is the information we are recording uh, about any part of our collections? How are we making that information accessible? To whom are we making that information accessible within our institution? to our publics, and as the, I would say, you know, kind of holy grail, across our institutions. So that's, yeah, that's very, very interesting, because what you're saying in a way is that curators and registrars, uh, uh, conservators, need to see themselves as learning facilitators, not preservers or cleaners of the artwork. Yes. And I would say that the values shift that's taking place is our job is to make things safe and open and accessible. Um, It's not only about preserving things. We want to preserve things, but we need to, again, using both and, how do we conserve and make things accessible? Uh, a great example of that is uh, the museums in Gloucester um, in, um, in Scotland. I think I'm right here. Oh, in, um, in Glasgow? The in Glasgow. Mark- I'm sorry. Uh, I, you know, that's fine. I, 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 you got me in a bad, bad geographic moment there, Carol. But, yeah, in Glasgow where, you know, the job of a conservator was how do we make this object touchable, accessible, by our community, because our community, in fact, is the most important trustee for our collections. I th- you're talking about some of the work that Mark O'Neill has yes. uh, piloted, where uh, where they're actually allowing uh, uh, just regular folks to borrow museum collections and put them in their offices or homes or place of, of uh, additional public access so that they can be enjoyed. And some university art museums are doing this, too. In Oberlin, this has been a policy for a long time. So I think those are the values that 
are going to be very, very important for us um, as we go forward. And, and museum studies programs uh, need to be able to support that skill building in collaboration, in digital asset management, in uh, creating these seamless avenues for, um, for access, again, internally and externally. It seems as if uh, this really gets into this area of, uh, uh, when we're talking about training programs, we're also talking about training for 21st century skills. Right. That it is truly not uh, not enough to simply know your craft or know your content base, which is certainly what it was like um, when I was going going through school. But it is uh, learning skills that are uh, collaborative and communicative, uh, all of those things that make gaming activities and even communicating on things like Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, other blogs so much more successful. Well, and, you know, I think this, is, this could be a golden age for museums because we are in an era where it's not just about uh, uh, the, the sort of cognitive dimension of learning because knowledge is being created, recreated, and enhanced at exponential speeds right now. And that's, that's, that is being enabled by new technologies by the cloud, by big data, by social media. So those skills that museums help can help um, uh, encourage, those skills about um, play, innovation, tinkering, um, self-directed learning, um, working together collaboratively, those can be some skills. Making, those are skills that are, are going to be essential for dealing with the world that we're in today, where knowledge is, is just, again, knowledge is growing. And, the, and, and you can find on YouTube how to do so many different things. So we have this ability using real collections and real stuff and the fact that we are welcoming places in the community. We are places for families to learn together. We are places for people to gather we can we can really um, highlight those roles that we can play. It can be very exciting. I agree with you. And on that, we're going to take another break, and we will be back just in a moment to uh, hear some last words from Marsha about uh, the future of museums in this digital age. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Taramino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics. Get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry, the LGBT community, and the sex-positive world. From kink to non-monogamy, nothing is off-limits. Plus, you can call in to join the conversation. 
Sex Out Loud airs every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, welcome back, and I'm here with Marcia Semmel, and we've been talking about the role that uh, museums play and museum collections in particular play in the in this digital age. And Marcia, we were just talking a little bit during the break, you were talking about an example that you had of how we can really in- extend that concept of curatorship or expertise uh, uh, to an online forum. Yeah, and this is just, this is an example from the uh, Children's Museum of Houston, which has been working with the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry and the New York Hall of Science on what are the roles of tablets in some of the uh, exhibits that they're doing. And one of the, you know, the whole notion of um, expert is being uh, used in a really interesting way in this project because uh, what the staff members have done is to go through, you know, there's so many hundreds of thousands of apps out there, and they've actually curated trustworthy and, and sort of scientifically uh, uh, um, strong and legitimate and valid apps that correspond to some of the museum experiences. So that if you are an interpreter in the exhibit hall, or you can show the parent or the child, you know, these four or five apps. So the museum's not necessarily creating the apps, but that curatorship is really extended to the selection of trusted material that supports the uh, exhibit or interactive experience um, in the museum. So that's a whole other way, and it, it builds on what I was saying before about historical literacy or scientific evidence. You know, how do you uh, take yourself as a museum professional and your expertise out of perhaps the museum proper, but into the world of your community, linking to what you're trying to convey through your museum itself? 
you know, that is such a perfect example. And I, I, it reminds me, and you, you actually make this quote in the, uh, uh, in the paper that, or the speech that, that you gave, uh, and, and you quoted Stephen Weil, who said that a museum's role is to help solve people's problems. And one of the most important problems that we have today in terms of learning and knowledge is the curation of sources. Yes. Yes, and that's not going to go away. In fact, I think it's going to become an even more uh, important skill and a more important role for museums. And libraries as well. And so yes. going back to what we were talking about earlier, this is a way of, of, of showing the connection of, um, of, of these. Uh, what did Harold Scramshit call that? Um, oh, the public utilities of the knowledge society. I love that. I love I that. He, he, he brings things back into perspective. Marsha, before we leave, we have about uh, four minutes. And I, I uh, also in the, uh, the lecture, you talked about this wonderful young man named James mm -hmm. and his experience in the museum uh, uh, and, and his reflections. And, and uh, I was wondering, could you just share a little bit about James's story with us? Yeah, I met James through his mom, and James is 12, and he lives in Scranton. And uh, he is privileged in that his parents have uh, really understand and have been very attuned to James's learning needs. And I would argue that one of our roles as museums is to think about those Jameses who maybe don't have exactly the same sort of home life and parents that, that James has. But anyway, James uh, is an example of someone who, for whom school uh, has not, public school has not quite worked. So he is doing something called the mixed transcript. He's going to He's pursuing a customized education program that combines public school classes, online courses, and um, through a university, and an online private school. And then he does all sorts of other things. But I asked him about museums and what was important about museums. And he is just an incredibly articulate 12-year-old. But one of the things he talked about um, as he parsed, for him, he has no problem with why it's important to learn sometimes in a classroom online and why it's important sometimes to be with his colleague uh, students. But he wrote, museums are good places to learn because it's sometimes easier to understand ideas by seeing how they are part of real things. Many scientific ideas are easier to understand when students can interact with objects and displays that demonstrate them. Flotation, for example, is something difficult to describe, but students can understand it better if they see things actually floating at different levels in different liquids and moving up or down because of density and weight. And then he says the Da Vinci Science Center is a good place to see things like this, and so is the Franklin Institute. At other museums, like the Steamtown National Historic Site and Lackawanna Coal Mine, students can interact with large objects like steam engines and move through spaces like coal mines. It's very hard to get good pictures of these things because they are larger than humans, and humans need to be inside them to really get a sense of what they are like. So that's just an excerpt from James's eloquence. Uh, and so he's very, very comfortable in this mixed learning environment, 
and he knows how to pull out from the different components of the environment those things that are meaningful learning for him. And I think that that is exactly uh, what we were what we were shedding uh, uh, talking about earlier. As museum professionals, I think sometimes we are our own worst enemies. That we uh, maybe it, it, not that we think too deeply, but maybe we we worry too much. Uh, our visitors uh, to museums and our potential visitors out there are really smart. Uh, they know how to navigate their worlds, and by and large, if we make a museum open and welcoming, uh, they can navigate our institutions as well. I completely agree. I'm I'm struck a little bit by uh, some of the the. Um, the other comments that you made in in your lecture talking about uh, these ideas of how museums can use their collections in more open and welcoming ways uh, to not be defined by their collections as much. Um, can you talk a little, just just a, uh, perhaps a, an example or two about how a key object uh, can be used uh, uh, to engage 21st century learners? And I think I was thinking a little bit about the uh, the lunch counter that is at the American or Smithsonian's Museum of American History. Well, you know, I think uh, one of the things I talked about in my lecture was that. Um, there's a reason that we have museums and museum collections because they they really do connect to who we are as people, and so, and there's some objects that are wonderfully iconic objects that can speak on multiple levels for us. And the, the Woolworth lunch counter that you speak of at that's part of the Smithsonian's Museum of American History. Um, is is a powerful object because it stands for many different things. It was a very, very important uh, symbol of the civil rights movement in the South. It was a place, and it, it has a it. It was a place where, in 1960, four African American students from a local college sat at a whites-only lunch counter, and. Uh, were at refused to leave, so this creates you know this is sort of a seminal movement in the history of the South, in the history of the civil rights movement, uh, and it has a mass and a scale and a power and association that is a little like what James was talking about with the coal mine. It you know it's it's important people want to connect to it. It's like an icon or a relic from the medieval times it's it's sort of a piece of a true cross yes and those objects they keep their power and we will keep adding to those powers and you know um i i, I agree with you completely that these are 
uh, that that we should never lose sight of the fact of the power of the object, as James said, and uh, and yet we need to keep uh, reminding ourselves that these need to become accessible and inviting and open uh, for all. Marsha, uh, I want to thank you so much for your participation today. You, uh, you've given me some new insights and some new things to think about, uh, and as I continue to hone my own museum practice and be try to become a more open and inviting uh, museum curator. Again, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.org or through Voice America. Uh, have a great day, Marcia. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Carol. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? 